Well, thank you all for coming to our Grand Rounds today. I would like to welcome all of you and those also participating remotely. It's my very great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Bill Black today, who will be giving us um, a lot of insights uh, on the Grand Round session. Bill has been with us, we're fortunate, for over 25 years here at Dartmouth. Um, he's a professor of radiology, of community and family medicine, and of TDI. And he's really internationally renowned for his, both as a radiologist and a researcher, for his expertise in medical decision making and also in screening and diagnostic imaging. Bill's was here the, as the PI of the landmark NLST, the National Lung Screening Trial, and that has really been uh, pivotal in the, in the field, and Bill is a kind of our local um, expert in that area. And from the NLST, Bill participated actually nationally on panels that, that have now translated into guidelines and national uh, policy and recommendations related to lung cancer screening. So he really has paved the way nationally for what we do um, you know, clinically and, and in our populations. So we're fortunate that, that we've had uh, Bill doing that, and even regionally, um, he's really been the, the champion for lung cancer screening in our area. Um, so with the, and I've learned today that Bill is on vacation, so we're going to take a little bit of his time, but he's very busy and very productive, so he's nice enough to, um, to join us today. I do need to read the following statements about conflict of interest. Dr. Black does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of products or devices. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So we welcome Bill Black. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tracy, for the very generous introduction. Uh, and thank everyone here for showing up when I'm sure you all had at least one other thing to do today. All right, so as far as disclosures, I have no financial disclosures, no financial interest at all. I don't need money. <laughs> um, however, I was a co-investigator in the National Lung Screening Trial, so I might have a slight bias toward NLST. Um, and I'm also a member of the American College of Radiology um, Lung RADS and Lung Cancer Screening Registry Committees, which is uh, still actively working, which are still actively working. So over the next, hopefully, 45 minutes or so, I'll be giving you just a little bit of a background on lung cancer screening and then talk to you about the current status nationally and here at DH. And finally, I'll give you some of my thoughts about future directions of lung cancer screening. So it's just some basic facts that you are probably already very familiar with. Uh, lung cancer is by far and away the leading cause of cancer death in the U.S., responsible for more than 25% of all the cancer deaths. Uh, it is estimated in 2018 that there will be over 154,000 deaths from lung cancer. For comparison, the, the number of deaths from the three most de second, most, or second, third, and fourth most deadly cancers combined, that is uh, colon, pancreas, and breast, is only 135,000. The overall five-year survival in the U.S. is just a little bit over 18%, and that's because most of the cases are diagnosed when they're late. It is believed that cigarette smoking causes 80 to 90% of all the lung cancers in the U.S. So the National Lung Screening Trial was a randomized clinical trial that was started in 2002, uh, and DHMC was one of the participating sites. It randomized over 53,000 individuals at high risk on the basis of their age and smoking history. It was a one-to-one -one randomization between two arms, one receiving 
low-dose CT screening, and the other receiving chest X-ray screening. They each received three annual screens and then were followed for about four more years. The primary endpoint in the trial was lung cancer mortality, but the secondary endpoint was all-cause mortality, which I'll mention in a few minutes. The eligibility for national lung screening trial were, one, no symptoms or prior diagnosis of lung cancer, age 55 to 74, at least a 30-pack year history of smoking, and if the uh, uh, potential participant had quit, they had to have quit within the last 15 years. The, um, as I said, no prior lung cancer, and they had to be medically fit for surgery. So these are the, uh, the results of the National Lung Screening Trial. On the left, you can see the slide showing the incidence of lung cancer, on, and on the right is the uh, mortality from lung cancer. Actually, let me get my pointer here. Oops, sorry. So there were, like I said, there were three annual screenings and then a period of uh, observation. And as far as the lung cancer incidence was concerned, you can see it's higher in the screened arm, the black arrow, than it was in the control arm, the red arrow. Um, and uh, at the end of the trial, which was on average six and a half years after the beginning, there was an excess of about 120 cases of lung cancers of lung cancer in the screen group than the control group. Now that excess represents some combination of early diagnosis and overdiagnosis. And at the end of the trial, you really don't know. We did, made some modeling estimates, and I'll show you the estimates from the modeling. Um, but uh, we now actually have extended follow-up of the NLST going five years beyond this point. So we actually do know what the overdiagnosis rate is without any modeling. And that will be, that paper is in preparation right now. Uh, and, and as far as uh, lung cancer mortality, and my arrow is not working, um, you can see that the, the mortality was uh, lower in the CT arm than in the chest X-ray arm. And at the end of the trial, there was an estimated 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality in the screen group. Actually, in the CT screen group, because the chest X-ray group was also getting screening with chest X-ray but it was believed at the outset of the trial and at the end of the trial that the chest X-ray really had no effect whatsoever on lung cancer mortality, so it seemed like a pretty uh, safe assumption. The other point I want to make is that uh, in addition to showing a statistically significant 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality, the NLST was the first study ever to show a statistically significant reduction in all-cause mortality. Nothing else comes close. And one of the reasons why you get it in lung cancer screening is because these high-risk patients are so likely to die from lung cancer. More, uh, more than a quarter of the deaths in the, in, this, in, the, in the population of the NLST were due to lung cancer. And for any other type of screening, like breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening, prostate cancer screening, the, usually the screened population is at much lower risk of the target disease. With regard to absolute risk reduction, which some people like to use for um, thinking about screening and uh, providing informed consent, if you looked at just those people who were actually had at least one round of screening and looks at the num look at the number of deaths in the CT arm versus the chest X-ray arm, you get an absolute risk reduction of uh, 0.0031, which doesn't mean much to anybody. If you look at the reciprocal, it turns out to be 
I'm sorry, that estimate, that comes out to be about three deaths per 1,000 people screened. So you reduce the number of lung cancer deaths per three people who entered this trial of three rounds of screening. If you look at the reciprocal, you get the number needed to screen to prevent one lung cancer deaths, and that's just about one in 320, which actually uh, compares very favorably with breast cancer screening at ages below 60. Now, in addition to the benefits of screening that I just talked about, lung cancer mortality reduction, there are some harms to consider. And the false positive screening results, overdiagnosis, and radiation. And I'll briefly touch on each. Uh, the, the, probably the biggest, most widely recognized harm in the National Lung Screening Trial was the false positive rate. Uh, and it was about estimated to be 27% in the first round of screening. And over all three rounds, cumulatively, the false positive rate was almost 40%. However, um, the most common uh, workup for the lung cancer, for the positive test, was a single low-dose chest CT without any needles, no injections, so it was non-invasive. So while that uh, false positive rate was high indeed, in most cases it led to nothing but a fo one follow-up uh, low-dose chest CT. Less than 7% of the false positive participants had an invasive procedure. And I think right now here at Dartmouth, it's even lower than that. Overdiagnosis, uh, as I said before, there were more lung cancers that were diagnosed in the CT arm than the chest X-ray arm at the end of the trial by about 120. Um, with this, the use of some modeling, it was estimated that 11% of the screen-detected lung cancers in the CT arm would not have presented before the patient died of other causes. That estimate is going, to, is going to be looked at in this extended follow-up. We'll actually be able to directly determine, without having to do any modeling, what the actual uh, overdiagnosis is compared to that 11%. But it can't be any higher than that. So it's just going to go down with further observation. Um, and also, the, the rates for overdiagnosis were far higher for the small lung cancers, the adenocarcinomas in situ, and the minimally invasive adenocarcinomas than for the standard lung cancers that most people see in clinical practice. And the, the difference was 49% versus 3%. So it is a problem when we get into in situ cancers and small, minimally invasive, but it's not a problem when it comes to, um, you know, just a, a real solid nodule. Radiation exposure is another consideration. The effective dose of a low-dose CT is about 1.4 millisieverts. To put that into some perspective, the effective dose for a standard chest CT is about five times as high, seven millisieverts. The effective dose from natural background radiation living at sea level is about three millisieverts per year. So a CT scan, one CT scan, one screening CT is about half the dose that a person will get from just living on, at sea level. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard to figure out what is the impact of these small uh, levels of radiation. You really can't do it by direct observation. You have to do, also, you have to do modeling, and there's all sorts of uncertainty with the modeling. But in the modeling for this, they took a conservative approach that there was no threshold to radiation, that it was a linear response. Um, and with that, they estimated that the lung in the appropriate population, lung cancer screening would prevent 20 times more lung cancers than it would cause, at least in that high-risk population. 
if you were to extend lung cancer screening to a non-smoking younger population, well, that, of course, would not be true. Um, and the benefit risk is least favorable for the younger women down around you know, age 50 who have fewer pack years. So in, in summary, for the National Lung Screening Trial, it was a randomized trial of over 50,000 individuals at high risk. There was a 20% lung cancer mortality reduction, and there was a 7% all-cause mortality reduction. Again, the only screening trial ever to show an all-cause mortality reduction. Cumulative false positive rate was high, about 40%. However, most of these people just got one single low-dose chest CT. Overdiagnosis rate was estimated as at 11% in this trial, but we will have uh, new information uh, uh, published in a few months. Now, the, the, most, the newest news that I have to give you, and this is really, really important, and this comes from the Nelson trial in Europe. Uh, up until just a few weeks ago, there was still quite a bit of skepticism about lung cancer screening throughout the U.S. and actually throughout the world because the NLST was the only trial, in fact, the only study, to show a statistically significant reduction in lung cancer from screening. The problem is that all the other trials were much, much smaller. There were you know, 1,000 patients rather than 50,000 patients. The only other trial that was anywhere comparable was the Nelson trial, and it had 15,000. Early results of the Nelson trial did not show a benefit, but they were not powered to. So it was just, it was just about six weeks ago that the final results of the Nelson trial were presented at the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer meeting. Um, and it, what they showed in this randomized trial of over 15,000 individuals at high risk, the selection criteria was slightly different than in NLST, a little bit younger population, and there were fewer restrictions on the um, PAC years. But what they showed actually was a 26% mortality reduction in men and a far higher mortality reduction in women, although it wasn't statistically significant in women because they represented a much smaller percentage of the population. I think it was 13% in the, in the Nelson trial versus almost 50% in the NLST. They also showed an all-cause mortality reduction of 5% and a cumulative false positive rate much lower of 10%. Now, part of that difference is definitional, in that when they had an intermediate result and got a follow-up CT, they didn't call it a false positive. It just called it an intermediate result. So part of it was reclassification of what you did with the results. Their overdiagnosis rate we don't have good information on, but it's probably somewhere what we saw in NLST, about 10%. And like I said, this was just presented recently, six weeks ago, so, and I believe it's already been submitted to one of the major journals and will be coming out in a few couple months. Why did, was the Nelson trial better than the NLST, or why, did the, why were the results better? Um, I haven't seen it. There's no publication on this yet because the results were just uh, presented. I have at least four or, uh, explanations for why. Uh, one is simply that the Nelson trial had more rounds of screening than NLST. Nelson trial had four rounds. We had only three rounds. Everybody on the planning committee wanted six rounds of screening for NLST, but we were limited by the budget. And so we could only afford three. The rationale being, well, three would be enough to see if it works. The problem is when you run a randomized trial of screening and you have an observation phase after screening stops, you end up diluting the estimate of mortality. And so we knew we were underestimating mortality. Uh, we didn't know how much. 
Um, but anyway, so Nelson trial had four versus three rounds of screening. They had no chest X-ray screening in the control arm. So to the extent that chest X-ray screening might have provided some small benefit uh, in the NLST, you would expect better results in the Nelson trial. They also had a centralized interpretation of all the images. So rather than relying on 33 different sites, each with you know, four or five different radiologists, they really could you know, centralize it and have just a few of the most experienced radiologists interpret these exams. In addition, they had a much more systematic approach because they, they started their trial a few years after the NLST. So there was a little bit more, uh, the technology was a little bit more sophisticated and because they had far fewer sites, they were actually able to coordinate everything more closely. And so they ended up using volumetric assessment of nodules as opposed to our somewhat arbitrary assessment of whether or not nodules were growing. Incidentally, we currently use volumetric doubling times here at DHMC for screening. And then finally, there's possible the role of chance. So I just want to briefly review the timeline with lung cancer screening um, recently. Uh, since in 2011, the NLST mortality results were reported in the New England Journal. In December of 2013, the U.S. Center of Services Task Force uh, gave a grade B recommendation, which means that Medicare, I'm sorry, which means that private insurers must cover it without co-pays. It doesn't have any uh, force on Medicare. In April of 2014, American College of Radiology developed its first lung rads interpretation system, 1.0, uh, which was designed to uh, facilitate the interpretation and standardize it. In f February 2015, CMS came up with their decision to, against actually quite a bit of uh, objection from the MedPCAC uh, committee, uh, they decided to reimburse lung cancer screening uh, under s several uh, pretty tough constraints. One is you had, the person had to meet eligibility criteria, which match NLST, had to be documented, um, and they had to go through a shared decision-making process, uh, which is the first intervention in radiology that's ever required shared decision-making. And in fact, I'm not sure any intervention requires shared decision-making. Any other intervention that CMS pays for requires shared decision-making. Um, and, and just briefly, I think it's, in theory, I think shared decision-making is a great idea, uh, but it, would, it is not something that's had really good support, so it's not been done right. Um, and then in September 2015, the American College of Radiology had developed uh, an online entry capability for the lung cancer screening registry, and that was another requirement from CMS that all cases had to be submitted to a, a national registry. And so the nice thing about this is all legitimate lung cancer that's happening in the United States that's getting paid for has to be submitted to the lung cancer screening registry. So we have one... Uh, database that should have all the information on lung cancer screening. So that's a real uh, treasure trove. And then in just a, a few weeks ago in September, the Nelson mortality results were presented. So just to briefly remind you, the U.S. Permanent Task Force recommendation, uh, they recommend annual screening for lung cancer with low-dose computed tomography in adults ages 55. They extended it to age 80 with the help of some modeling. Um, who have a 30-pack year history of smoking and currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years. So the same thing as the NLST criteria, except they raised 77 to 80. 
however, they also say that screening should be discontinued once a pe person has smoked has not smoked for 15 years or develops a health problem that substantially limits life expectancy or the ability or willingness to have curative lung sur surgery. But they don't really say what a substantial limit is. And they gave it a grade B recommendation. Uh, they also had other considerations. They said you should couple the lung cancer screening with smoking cessation efforts. And you should also provide shared decision making. And you should standardize low-dose CT readings and follow-up. And you should develop a registry. And of course, CMS uh, not only agreed with all these recommendations, they enforced them and said, we're not paying for your CT screening unless you do all these things and document them. So uh, I'll just briefly talk to you about lung RADs. This is a systematic approach to interpretation. Uh, the purpose is to standardize reporting, reduce confusion, and facilitate outcome monitoring. So probably the biggest difference between our interpretation criteria now and how we are doing it during NLST is that we've uh, changed the threshold for what we call a suspicious nodule. In the NLST, we don't want to miss anything, so we set a, a long axis diameter of greater than four millimeter as a, posit as a positive result. In the, um, in, for lung rads, we use an average diameter greater than or equal to six millimeters as a threshold. And that might seem sort of trivial, changing four millimeters to two millimeters, but it actually has a pretty big impact. It reduces the number of positive results by over 50%. Uh, and it's been demonstrated retrospectively in the NLST that if you had applied lung rads, the, the positivity rate, or the false positivity rate, would have gone from 27% to 13%. Uh, if, if, if there's some people in the room who can't read the print at the very bottom, um, <laughs> there's an eye clinic upstairs. No, no um, this is, I'm just showing you that we have one simple page for uh, helping us interpret these CT scans, and I refer to it every day. So I you can't remember all this stuff like a cookbook, and there's a lot of details in there. Uh, some of the major stuff, of course, I remember, but there are all sorts of little variations. But this is just a, I'm just showing you this to, so that you see we have a systematic approach to how we work up these nodules and how we report them. Um, we also, I also use a lung cancer risk calculator for all the cases that are positive so that we don't leave people and their, uh, the patients and their providers wondering how positive. Unfortunately, there is a, um, there's a very good uh, prediction model that's based on two high-risk uh, Canadian screening Canadian populations, uh, and it calculates lung cancer risk at first screen. It doesn't work for the subsequent screens, but the first screen is the most important. That's where you have mo all, most of your positives. And it uses a combination of patient and nodule characteristics. And this is just how it works. And, and, and very fortunately, they also published a uh, are provided uh, with their article that was published in the New England Journal, um, a spreadsheet that's downloadable, and you can even go to the website and just plug in the information. So you plug in information about the patient, such as, in this case, age 51, uh, sex male, gets a zero, um, family history, lung cancer, no, uh, size of nodule, this was just a case that I had had, not a lung cancer screening case, five millimeters, and, and has more information about the nodule. So you put in all that information, and then it spits out what the probability of lung cancer is. And this has been proven to be very accurate, at least for those nodules under 10 millimeters. So um, 
uh, when we screen somebody here, if they have a positive result and it's a nodule that's measurable, I will, re I will report out the probability so that the person knows you know, how much to be worried. And most of the time we report the, probabil the probabilities, it's, it's low in that order of 5% you know, or so. Actually, this was half a percent. And I'm just going to show you a couple of examples of nodules. Uh, in this case, you can see there is a nodule right here. In most cases, when I see a nodule like that, I don't bother measuring it. It's really tedious to try to measure these things with calipers, and or calipers are very inaccurate. What I do instead is I just physically drag this little, uh, this uh, grid down here, which has centimeter markers, and I put it next to the nodule like that, and I can just eyeball it and see that that nodule is clearly less than six millimeters in size, and so I just report it as a sub-six millimeter nodule. That requires no further evaluation. Other than to look at it again when the patient comes back for annual screening, if they do come back. Um, here's an, an, another nodule that's a little bit bigger. Uh, just eyeballing that, I could see that that was over uh, six millimeters. So in a case like this, we use our volumetric software. So uh, uh, the way this works is we just put a put a curse. We we actually have to send this to another server. We put a cursor on the nodule, and it gets a three-dimensional volume. Uh, and then it estimates the average diameter, uh, assuming that the volume was, was now a sphere. And so this gives you a much more accurate measurement than the, the hand measurements. And plus, with this, you can use sequential measurements to estimate doubling time. So in this particular example, you can see the nodule um, effective diameter was 7 millimeters. If we use that uh, prediction model that I showed you before, it came from screening. This turns out to be a probability somewhere around 2 to 4 percent. Here's another patient, 68-year-old uh, male. I'm sorry, yeah, former smoker, male former smoker, greater 100-pack years of smoking, um, has an 8-millimeter nodule in the lower lobe. The initial probability was actually less than it was in the last one. This is uh, because of the lower lobe location. But this was measured uh, or, or came back for follow-up in... Um, three months, and you can see it actually grew uh, quite a bit, uh, and it had an estimated doubling time of 145 days, which definitely puts it in the malignant category. Uh, this went to surgery, and this was uh, stage 1A adenocarcinoma. Okay, so what's happened to screening across the United States um, since 2015? You can, uh, you can look at, again, I said lung cancer screening registry has all the legitimate cases that have been done in the U.S., so we have a good way of tracking what's <laughs> happening. And you can see the number of cases that have been submitted to this registry has steadily grown since 2015 and is up to about 354,000, a little over that uh, projected through 2018. Although this is still a very small fraction of all the patients who are eligible in the, in the U.S., uh, and in fact, there was a recent presentation this summer uh, on the uh, uptake of lung cancer screening in the U.S. And, it, and the way the authors came up with their estimate of how much it's being used is they, they knew from the National Health Survey what the, how many patients there were that were eligible in different geographical areas. And they used the lung cancer screening registry to determine how many screens were done. They did it for the year 2016. And when they did it for the year 2016, they found overall only 
1.9% of all eligible uh, subjects in the U.S. were being screened for lung cancer or having, screen, having their screening cases submitted to the registry. It varied a little bit uh, geographically, but the main message was that uh, it was a very, very low rate. Now, fortunately, um, it's, it's improved slightly since then. As I said, that was based on 2016 data. And in 2018, the number of eligible people has not gone up. It's actually gone down slightly. And you can see the number of scans has gone up more than twofold. So probably a more uh, accurate estimate for what's currently happening right now is, is probably closer to 4%, but still pretty abysmal especially if you care to compare it to other forms of screening, like breast cancer screening, where it's probably closer to 75%. So why is this, there's so, such a low uptake for lung cancer screening? I think there are several reasons have been cited. Uh, one is this lack of knowledge on both the part of the patients, the general population, um, and providers. Uh, another is lack of access and very low reimbursement for the, the CT screening and the shared decision-making. And the other issue is just limited time since the guidelines were first uh, recommended by U.S. Preventive Task Force. So I want to point out why I think it's um, the, some of the barriers that are mixed, uh, some of the barriers that result from th these other factors. Well, lung cancer screening is a multi-step process. Is, uh, and we have to do, you do an eligibility assessment, and this is not always simple. Um, it's usually pretty easy to determine their sex and age, but the smoking history can be really problematic because not everybody uh, remembers exactly how much they smoked every year of their life, surprisingly. Uh, so it's really hard to get accurate numbers. And, you, and often if you ask the patient twice what their pack years are, you try to get estimates, you get two different answers. So that's definitely a challenge. And, and, and amazingly to me, uh, there is not a standardized process in the country for how you should elicit pack years or anywhere. So and look at all the studies that are out there looking at uh, risks of smoking for lung cancer and other things. They're all based on pack years. But there's no consistent application of how you assess pack years. Uh, then there's the shared decision-making. And again, as much as I really believe in shared decision-making, this has been a huge obstacle for lung cancer screening. Because basically what has to happen is, in addition to determining that the patient is eligible, the provider, at the time they're seeing the patient, has to have a spare 30 minutes to go over this really complex process of shared decision-making, something that they may not have been trained for with regard to how you do shared decision-making and may not be completely familiar with all the data related our pieces of information that are important for making the decision. And, uh, and then you have the tobacco cessation. And again, this is problematic. And again, a lot of providers don't have the skills in uh, providing this um, and just don't have the confidence that they can actually uh, get results. And then they don't, the patient doesn't want to be hassled with smoking cessation because they've not had pleasant experiences before. So these are three huge obstacles. And in addition to doing these, they have to be documented in the medical record, which can also be a huge hassle. The lung cancer screening is the simple part. It has come down to the you know, hop in the scanner, takes two seconds, or the actual screen takes less than a second. There's no needles, uh, nothing, no preparation at all, and they just hop off. 
So that's actually by far and away the easiest part of the whole screening process is doing the scanning. The interpretations you may be a little bit harder. You know, I have to look at a bunch of images and, and generate a report. But those two elements are so much easier than everything that precedes it. And then there's communication with the patient and provider. Um, fortunately, most of our screening results are negative and doesn't require any extra effort. Uh, and the patient just receives a, uh, a letter within a couple days. Um, and the provider, of course, gets the information right off the uh, uh, ADH. Um, it's a little more complicated when we have a positive. Uh, for all positives, I will contact the provider and to make sure one, that the provider knows what the result is, so they know about it before the patient does, and two, to tell them what our recommendation is, and then three, to ask them if they're okay with that. Uh, and sometimes what we'll do with these patients, we'll refer them to CTOP, our, 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 our weekly tumor board conference, and they always are happy with that. Now, but the biggest problem there is sometimes a provider might not be available by phone. And then I send an email. And uh, then you have the patient management part for the positive ones. And data submission to a registry, which is actually another, that's a barrier for the radiology departments, because um, that is, we have about 80 data elements to submit for every exam. So let's take, talk just a minute about shared decision making. As I said before, it's only required for lung cancer screening, no other interventions that I'm aware of. There's a cardiac intervention. Oh, there is? Oh, thanks, Sue. Okay. Okay, so there's two. Um, the, the, the existing online materials are difficult to read. There was one recent study that estimated the grading, grade level of the reading material that was published online for lung cancer screening that came out to be uh, on average 11 years when it was recommended by the National Cancer Institute or NIH and American Medical Association that they should be around fifth grade level. So it's very difficult reading. Um, it's difficult to apply the results of a trial, which is these are population results, to an individual, because the individual may not be right smack in the middle of all the trial participants. Might be older, might be younger, um, might have some uh, lesser or more smoking pack years, had other comorbidity. So there's a whole bunch of factors that can complicate the application of those trial results to the decision-making for an individual. Um, and also, the shared decision-making process has been very poorly uh, documented in the EMR. And unfortunately, this is not just the case nationally. This is the case here. Because, uh, it's, again, it's very time-consuming to do. Um, and the billing for shared decision-making has been about one-tenth the rate of the billing for the low-dose screening CT. And when I heard CMS present those results a few years ago, I asked them, what does that mean? Does that mean you're not going to reimburse the screening CT? Because it says in their memo that they're only going to pay for the screening CT if there is documented shared decision-making. And at least at that time, they had not decided. But it's plausible that they could come in and audit us and say, oh, there's no shared decision-making documented on those 780 CTs that you've done. We're going to take all the money back. So we are at some risk. Uh, there was a recent study on the quality of shared decision-making published in JAMA. Um, and it was based on 
14 uh, audio uh, are tra transcriptions uh, of audio communications that uh, the audio, audio communication services used by several uh, clinics uh, and offices around the country uh, to save uh, time for the provider. And the way it works is they just record the visit and then the transcriptionist you know, types up the, um, the conversation. Uh, so anyway, these researchers got a hold of 14 conversations related to lung cancer screening after searching a huge database. Uh, and when they graded these conversations with regard to the option score, which was a tool developed by Glenn Elwin here at DH for uh, evaluating the quality of shared decision-making, the average score was six out of a possible 100. And the range was only zero to 17. So by at least our one objective measure was not very good. Uh, also listening to, uh, looking at the transcripts, there was no discussion of harms. There, were, there was no discussion of decision aids or educational materials. In the meantime, the conversation regarding lung cancer screening was 59 seconds. Now, I don't, I'm not reporting all this or saying all this to uh, criticize the providers. This is just the real world. The provider has a limited amount of time and a huge checklist. They can't possibly do everything on that checklist thoroughly. It's just impossible. So they take shortcuts. I, I can feel for them because I know when I'm reading CT scans and I have too many on my list with too many images, I have to take shortcuts. But in the reality, this is what's happening, and so it's not being done properly. Uh, but what are some of the decision aids that are available? Probably the most comprehensive one is one that was put together by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And this is a free, it's online. That's about five pages long. Uh, and uh, I think it would take any provider at least half an hour to read the material and understand it. So to present it to the, to the patient, it would be a real challenge. There's a website uh, that was put, um, that was created by um, one of the CISNET researchers from University of Michigan, uh, which has worked very well in their population, but they have a very highly educated population. And the nice thing about that tool is that it can, it can provide individual levels of, uh, individual estimates, or individual level of estimates for risk and benefit, which the other AHRQ cannot. So the patient can put in their age and their sex and their smoking history, and it will give them a more specific estimate of what their risk is and what their benefits are. And then there's a, a tool that DH recently purchased called Health Decision. Um, and this works very similar to the Should I Screen uh, program. The, uh, the, again, the advantage of this uh, program is that it enables you to individualize uh, the risk uh, of lung cancer for the patient and the benefits and harms. And this is currently available. We, any provider can use it right off EDH, and I'll show you how that works in just a, a few minutes. And then Dartmouth has produced their own two-page fact sheet. Uh, and this is, I think, the tool that most of the providers at DH have used to educate their patients about the benefits and harms. And that being said, uh, most uh, screening centers in the U.S. have created their own tools. I think partly because they have found the ones that are available nationally are too time-consuming and also probably think they discourage patients. 
Uh, and so I, I'm guessing, I haven't seen all of the, the sites from individual medical centers, but I'm guessing they um, are probably a little bit loose with the, uh, pro, with the benefits and harms. Uh, smoking cessation, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have too much to say about that other than that. Uh, it's been acknowledged that there is a huge knowledge gap as far as how this should be best implemented, implemented with lung cancer screening. Uh, and because of this, the uh, NIH and the Veterans Administration have funded eight ongoing clinical trials uh, looking at different ways to implement uh, smoking cessation into lung cancer screening. Uh, they all have they have different study designs, but they all include a, all the trials include a cost effectiveness analysis. So, uh, hopefully, in a few years, we'll have a better idea of how screening cessation could, can be best implemented in lung cancer screening. And for any of you that remember the summer, this is uh, what DH used to look like. <laughs> so now I'm going to br briefly talk about um, DH, and then hopefully have some time for some questions. Um, this graph here looks very similar to the graph I showed earlier showing that what's happening nationally. As you can see here at DH, the number of screenings that we've done have increased uh, in a stepwise fashion since 2014. And we're up to 400, we're estimated 420 for this year. Um, as far as our, what kind of results we get, uh, the overall uh, ones and, lung rads ones and twos are both considered benign uh, and uh, negative and don't require any further value up, uh, evaluations. So you can see only 8% of our screening uh, CTs here are positive, and that's on baseline. On annual screens, it's much less than it is on baseline. So we have a very low uh, positivity rate. Uh, and about, and, and the, of the positive, they're about equally split between a category three, which is a nodule just over six millimeters in size, and all that requires is one follow-up CT um, in uh, six months, low-dose CT. Category fours are a little bit higher risk, and for those, the follow-up is more variable. It could be a CAT scan and follow-up CT in three months. could be a PET scan. could be a presentation at CTOP, but it's very individualized. Uh, as far as how these categories uh, translate into a lung cancer, you can see of our category threes, only one out of 27 turn out to be lung cancer. Of our categories 4A, B, and X, you can see there's a pro progressive increase in the number of lung cancers per uh, case. And you can see for 4X, the positive predictive value is 80%. So there's a stepwise increase in the probability of malignancy as you move up the lung rad score from 3 to 4X. And if you just look at the lung cancer stage distribution of those patients who've been in our uh, screening program. Uh, those are in, ref in the white bars. The green bars represent the expected distribution of lung cancer stage based on the U.S. population, which is mainly people not being screened. So you can see we have a lot more stage ones, but very importantly, we have a lot fewer stage threes and fours, which indicates that this is not just overdiagnosis of early cancers. So I just want to briefly talk about um, uh, how to do this on EDH because I think this, this is a, somewhat of a problem. Uh, can I just get a show of hands on how many people in this room have successfully ordered a screening chest CT? Okay. You can tell us all about it. Since I've never done it. I can't do it, but okay. So 
there's a problem right there. Uh, so I'm going to briefly show, and I'll ask you, if, did you do it this way where you just went under order entry and typed in lung cancer screening? Okay, so that's the, the, the simplest way to do it. You just go as you're going to order anything else, and you just type in a couple words. You can type in lung cancer, lung screen, uh, cancer screen, CT lung. There's a variety of different combinations you could put in, and what you'll get then is a, a screen that hopefully shows you the right test you want to get, which is sort of awkwardly entitled CT chest screening lung cancer. And the reason it has that awkward title is, we, is because for a while it was – it was presented to clinicians on a list, and we wanted it to show up in the same list as um, similar scans that they could possibly order. So if you go through this process, you get to that, you, you click on that uh, screening examination, and then you get to um, a smart set that helps you with the complete the order. Uh, and one of the first things you see in the smart set is the eligibility criteria, and I'll just briefly go over those and then show you the rest of the smart set. So the eligibility criteria that are listed so to remind you when, whenever you're thinking about doing a lung cancer screening so you don't have to uh, look up somewhere else whether or not the patient's eligible. The patient has to be willing and able to undergo lung cancer treatment. They have to have no signs or symptoms of lung cancer or respiratory infection in the past 12 weeks. And the reason we have that there is because we don't want to confuse uh, uh, lung cancer and pneumonia. They have to have a minimum 30-pack years of smoking. If they're a former smoker, they have to quit within the last 15 years. Age has to be between 55 and 77. And they have to have no, lung, no history of lung cancer ever or other comorbidities that limit life expectancy to less than five years. Okay, this, that's, that's critical. And in fact, that's probably a very generous restriction because in the NLST, the average life expectancy at the start of the trial was over 21 years. So that really probably should be coming up to 10 years or more. But that, those are their current eligibility criteria. So again, if you go back to the EDH order entry, uh, when, you, when you click on uh, the appropriate examination, you'll see a screen like this that shows you the uh, eligibility criteria. And then you have to click, uh, click a few buttons like, you know, is it, and I actually don't even know what this means, normal standing in future, but you have to click one of those buttons. Um, <laughs> and then if you uh, click the button down at the bottom where it says lung cancer CT screening decision aid, that will actually take you to our two-page um, fact sheet. Uh, that gives you a little bit of an introduction about general benefits and harms, and then it gives you a sort of population-based uh, estimate of the benefits and harms per 1,000 people screened. So that's available right there online. And then this is some, um, oh, that's just a blow-up of showing the benefits and harms per 1,000. And for interest of time, I'm going to skip that. Uh, if you go back to the EDH, you get to another screen where it asks you for some information. Some's already, yeah, you have to choose where you want to have the screen done, Lebanon or Manchester. It's pre-populated things like lung cancer screening and asymptomatic but at high risk. You have to put in whether or not they're current or former smoker and whether or not they have any signs or symptoms of lung cancer. And if they don't, it'll kick you out. Uh, so if you do say, if you put in the pack years, say 80 years, then it reminds you that you need to do a shared decision-making. And it gives you a little uh, smart phrase to type into your notes that will automatically populate your note in a way that's going to be eligible for CMS reimbursement. Uh, and so if you, if you do that, if you type in that little smart phrase, CT lung cancer, 
you'll get this uh, note. And the only thing you have to add to that is you have to put somewhere in there the number of pack years. But other than that, it's sort of standard template, and that should be uh, reimbursable by CMS. Now, uh, other tools that are available. Uh, one is health decision that I just referred to a minute ago. Uh, uh, DH purchased it, so anybody, any pr provider should be able to access it. If you don't see it in your left-hand panel, and you're probably not going to see it in your left-hand panel if you've never used it, you can go down to the very bottom of the screen where it says more, click on more, and you should find health decision on the panel to the right, and there should be a star by it. You just click on the star, and that will move that health decision tool to, by default, be on that left panel when you're uh, having a patient encounter. If you click on health decision, come to a screen that gives you uh, six different tools to choose among, and one of them is lung cancer screening. And the nice thing about this is uh, it's interactive, and you can put in, again, individual patient characteristics, get estimates for uh, risk of lung cancer over six years, and uh, profile of the benefits and harms of the screening. And then when you're done with this encounter, you can, uh, this program will print out a shared decision-making um, uh, paragraph that includes all the relevant information specific to that patient. You can just copy and paste it into EDH for your note. And then finally, there's something called a, um, a best practice alert for lung cancer screening. Has anyone in this room used it? No. Okay. It's right now, my, my understanding is that it is only available to GIM and primary care. However, I know that Shoshana Hort, who is their EDH representative, is working with people in thoracic surgery and maybe some other people to try to get this uh, template or uh, this um, alert uh, implemented on uh, other provider screens. So the way it works is that if you have a patient who is between the ages of 55 and 77 and who has either, uh, has either a former or current smoker and has greater than 30 pack years or not listed pack years, then you'll get this alert. When you go to, when you go to plan an encounter, it'll tell you this patient may be eligible and then it will direct you to go through that ordering process. So if, if you, get, you get this screen that tells you the patient may be eligible, you hit open smart set, uh, and then you go back to the lung cancer screening um, smart set that I showed just a minute ago, and you just re review the process. So just I'm going to hopefully tidy it up in just two minutes. So uh, what are the plans for your DH lab? One of the big important things is we want to make this best practice alert available to more providers who are likely to encounter patients who are eligible for lung cancer screening. And that will include uh, the pulmonologist, uh, the vascular surgeons, um, and uh, even uh, some of the other surgery departments. Uh, we want to encourage uh, patient, uh, providers to refer their patients for smoking cessation to Alexandra Fannin, who's in the back of the room right, that, right now. Is Alex, you want to just stand up? You can see her, her, her poster is plastered all around the medical center. Um, but she just came here about a year and a half ago? A little over a year ago. A little over a year ago. And she works in thoracic surgery. Uh, she's expert in not only doing smoking cessation, 
but she also now is, knows how to do the shared decision-making using that health dialogue program that I showed you, and she knows how to bill for it. So hopefully she'll be one of our, the, one of our biggest billers in, in the medical center soon. Um, and she's, we're also working on developing some telemedicine options. And again, Alex is, is working on this. And so the idea is that we would be able to take the people from outside communities who might be interested in lung cancer screening and do their eligibility assessment, shared decision-making, and smoking <coughs> cessation all by tele telemedicine. The technology is there. We can do it right now. Um, there's some disagreement on whether or not we'll get paid. Telemedicine thinks we will, but my sources say we won't. So I don't know. We'll just have to do it and see what happens when we build it. Uh, the other way we could use this is in, if a uh, provider sees a patient who they think during their visit might be a candidate for lung cancer screening but doesn't have time during that visit, and the patient lives far away, they could then refer the patient again to Alex, and Alex could do the, uh, the uh, eligibility and shared decision-making and smoking cessation remotely for that person so they wouldn't have to take another trip. Conceivably, and down the road, some of these screens could be done at outside sites, and then the images could be sent here for readings. So there's, a, and then I think this is really important because the, the people at risk for lung cancer are not the ones living in our immediate environment here. They're the ones in the rural com communities who live quite a distance from DH. Uh, future developments nationally, I think one of the big things is gonna be the revision of the eligibility mm -hmm. criteria. As I, as I told you right now, the ones we're using are from the NLST because they seem to work for NLST and they're simple, easy to implement. But it's been shown that they're not the best ways to predict, predict risk. The other thing we have to do is uh, provide more individualized decision support. Right now, all we have are these brochures that have uh, general information on the NLST, which does not pertain well to the individual. And what I'm hoping that we will do is we have a lot of this capability. Uh, and I'm hoping we will actually develop um, models that can be used not just for public health decisions, but for the individualized decision-making and have them available online, preferably through some government agency rather than having to purchase them, where you could actually get uh, individual, individual level um, help for a shared decision-making with lung cancer screening. Um, uh, hopefully after, the res uh, after those eight uh, trials are performed on lung cancer, on smoking cessation, we'll have a better idea how to integrate that. Uh, as I said, I think telemedicine will really help us reach the, the people who are at greatest risk for lung cancer and who may not live nearby. Uh, and the, the, I told you about LungRAD's version one. We've already uh, revised it to a version two, which will be operational January 1st. And then with that down the road, I hope to be replaced by a computer who can look at these uh, tedious uh, images. You know, we have about 400 different images to look at every slice and measure all these nodules. I'd rather just watch the computer do it. <laughs> and then um, for, for eventually we should be able to automate communications with the providers and all the scheduling. So rethinking eligibility just briefly. As I mentioned, the lung cancer risk alone is problematic because the comorbidity from other diseases increases rapidly with lung cancer risk. 
Furthermore, life expectancy decreases with life, lung cancer risk. So ideally, rather than using simply lung cancer risk as your marker for who's eligible, you'd rather look at something called expected gain, which is the product of your lung cancer risk and the number of life years or the life expectancy of that person that they have to benefit if they have a, a lung cancer death that's, that's prevented. In summary, uh, lung cancer screening was proven to be uh, effective at reducing lung cancer mortality and all-cause mortality in, in the NLST, and just recently the Nelson trial showed that it can be even better than it was in the NLST. The U.S. Turner Task Force recommends lung cancer screening under certain conditions. Uh, private insurers and CMS, again, under certain conditions will pay for it, although not much. Um, overall, the national uh, uptake of lung cancer screening is about 4% of those who are eligible. And this is probably because it's such a multi-step labor-intensive process, as particularly the shared decision-making and smoking cessation, which are critical, and I think, I think cost-effective certainly from a societal point of view, uh, but because of the reimbursements, uh, they are really problematic. Uh, and these, I'm just going to leave you with a set of uh, resources, and I apologize for going farther than I wanted to or longer than I wanted to, but at least we have five minutes for discussion or questions? Yes, Ryan. Um, yes. I think that was a great talk and a great overview just of how lung cancer screening came about and how it's used and the development of lung rads and, and all of those great things and some of the obstacles. Um, you mentioned a lot of them both at the provider level, at the patient level, and just so many different levels. I think from your standpoint, where do you think um, our efforts would be best directed to help achieve better enrollment in this? Is it from the provider? Is it at the patient standpoint, encouraging patients to become more educated about this and empowering them to go to their doctor's office or provider's office and say, hey, I need this screening? Is it a multifaceted approach for mm -hmm. engaging everybody in the process? Um, I, I think there are many, many places where there are things we could do. Um, what I, I have recently talked to um, Kat Agressi, who, you know, who, who, who does, uh, is it very interested in lung cancer screening, who was at some recent conferences uh, about lung cancer screening, and, and they had much more of a provider pr perspective than what I get when I get to my conferences on radiology. And it was pretty much universal across all the presentations. This is coming from Mayo Clinic and other, Cleveland Clinic and other major sites that have been good at it. They said the single biggest help for their system was having a best practice alert that would notify the providers at the time they were seeing the patients that the patient may be eligible. Because otherwise, just, there's too much going on, and the, person's, the provider is not going to be thinking lung cancer screening is the top priority, because, partly because it's not urgent, and the patients usually have all these other issues going on. So, they just have, so I think that having that BPA functional on all the uh, interactions here would be critical. Then I think the private providers have to have time to do this. Right now they don't. Um, and then so I think, uh, so I, th I think if you had some way of alerting the providers and you were able to support them with these tools and with time to do these, then they could actually start billing for it and that would, might pay for at least some of it. And actually, interestingly, the, the technical reimbursement for shared decision making is higher than the technical reimbursement for the CT scan. And that's a problem, too, because that's why a lot of centers just say, I'm not doing the screening anymore. It's at a really, really low rate. Did I answer your question, right? Yes, you did. Okay. Yeah. 
Any other questions? Yes. Is there something um, in, in the CMS reimbursement piece that says it has to be a physician that does the that facilitates these discussions or the smoking cessation or shared decision-making process? That's a very important question. It doesn't have to be a physician, but it has to be a physician or a uh, nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. So, and unfortunately, we have a lot of people at this institution who are very qualified in decision, uh, shared decision-making. We work at the Shared Decision-Making Center uh, and aren't qualified by the CMS to, to do the Shared Decision-Making. Thanks, Bill. I had another question about Shared Decision-Making. Is there any data on how frequently a provider thinks that a screening CT is appropriate for a patient, but after the results of the Shared Decision-Making discussion, the patient elects not to have a study? Is it... Um, that's a very good question, and I think the best answer to that comes from the Cleveland Clinic, where they have a referral program that accepts patients for uh, lung cancer screening. What they, they, don't, they, they don't rely on the provider setting it up. They, they get a referral from the provider to somebody who might be interested, and there they go through the eligibility assessment, uh, shared decision-making, and smoking cessation. I think there are three or four different uh, APRNs who are specialized in that. And from their publications, it looked like 97, about 97% of the people who went through shared decision making ended up choosing the lung cancer screening. It was a very small percentage that chose not to be screened, despite the fact that, in retrospect now, the information material was probably a low estimate of the benefit of the screening. Now, that may not have been a completely unbiased population, but those people who referred from other providers in the medical center who might have sensed that they were interested uh, in the screening. So it's probably not totally accurate, but I think it's, I'm guessing that once they've gone, once they're committed to the uh, process of going to the shared decision making, and the, and the providers committed to that, they probably go that route. But, but it's, that's a good question. It's possible that if you had really the best instruments, I would think you get a really great shared decision making product, you might have more people than you have. Looks like our time is up for questions, unless maybe Bill has some time after this. But I want to th uh, everyone to thank Bill again for this wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you.